Earthlings. Welcome to Spaceship One, where we share stories of how humans can repair and fuel our original spaceship, the awesome planet Earth. I'm your co-host, Anna. And I'm your co-host, Paloma. And today we're talking about the role of data in carbon farming and carbon credits. We have a guest with us who will speak to the data part. But first, we wanted to go over what carbon farming is and how it relates to carbon markets and credits. Carbon farming is basically any agricultural practice that helps soil do what soil does best, and that's storing carbon. Out of all the active carbon on Earth, soil holds the most. Plants take carbon from the air and convert it through photosynthesis into plant tissue, and some of that carbon gets stored in the soil through the plant's roots which makes the soil healthy and fertile and increases farmers' yields. Soil carbon can be released back into the atmosphere through conventional agricultural practices like tilling. So that's why no or low till is encouraged, not only for the purposes of carbon farming, but also for agricultural productivity overall. So making that switch from conventional agriculture, tilling and pesticides can be cost prohibitive for farmers. Which brings us to carbon credits. The fastest and easiest way to get farmers to do carbon farming is simply to pay them to do it. When they can show how much carbon is stored in their soil, they're basically given this carbon credit to sell to anyone who wants to offset their emissions, whether that's a company or an individual. Carbon markets aim to reduce the world's emissions cost-effectively, by setting limits on emissions and requiring groups that exceed the limits to buy offsets. The system isn't perfect though. It definitely has potential issues and we'll touch on those later. Now let's say hello to our guest, Max Feinberg. He's the chief technology officer of a company called Verdova, which specializes in helping farmers manage all the data coming in from their farm's operations and leverage that for the farmer's benefit. Thanks for that intro, Anna and Paloma. So yeah, Verdova is a grower-first ag data company and got started just through a number of conversations with real farmers out here in the Midwest, out in uh, Illinois. Through those conversations, we got to this concept of the farmer getting farmed. Essentially, as time has gone on, farmers have increasingly gotten less and less uh, value out of the total food value chain. Uh, If you look at every dollar spent in the United States, only about 13 cents of that dollar ultimately make it to the grower. With the explosive growth of artificial intelligence and the need for data, we sort of see Verdova as trying to use the data that growers have to make them relevant in uh, you know, the modern agriculture conversation. And what we mean by data, essentially all the information that comes from the machinery and you know, what they're doing day to day. So it's, you know, you're going out with like a tillage implement on a tractor, planting seeds, spraying fertilizer, pesticides, and, you know, ultimately harvesting that crop with a combine. And basically we take all that data, we clean it up and we help farmers market it to generate a new source of income and, you know, provide that data to all different types of companies that use it for analysis and building machine learning models and lots of other things. And 85% of all proceeds that we, uh, you know, make through a data deal go directly back to the farmer. And, you know, fundamentally we're able to use the data that farmers produce from their machines to verify and validate carbon credits. When we tie this data with some new form of uh, management practice, you know, whether that's you know, reducing tillage, changing when things are sprayed or what's being sprayed, planting new crops like cover crops, uh, that's when growers are able to sequester more carbon 
And that's where we're able to capture the value in terms of carbon credits. What we've sort of identified specifically in this space is there's a lot of confusion. There is not one universally accepted standard that everyone can just adhere to and follow. The World Bank has this website that has all the different carbon prices and all the different carbon markets across the world. And you can see price fluctuation from you know, somewhere around like $3 per ton in some of the markets in you know, South and Central America. And then prices going up to like $120 to $160 per ton in uh, some European nations. And specifically in the US here, there's a number of companies that have started carbon sequestration and carbon credit programs. Indigo Agriculture is a company based out of Boston. That's sort of one of the bigger players. There's another one called Nori. Uh, and those are just private sector programs. Uh, there's also this space of government programs, uh, including the California and Quebec cap and trade programs. And the way that we sort of fit into all of this is we're sitting down and analyzing all the different programs. There's you know lots of differences between what it takes to enter them and trying to figure out what matches up best for our growers. We really just want to be a good steward, like just like we know our farmers are good stewards of the land. We want to be good stewards of their data. We take all this data and we just want to package it in the exact right way that we're able to enter them into one of those programs. Yeah, that makes sense. And that definitely does sound helpful. I'm curious, you know, Verdova is a pretty young company, right? And there were some groups trying to create this type of platform, but this space of carbon credits and carbon markets is emerging and, you know, there's a lot of lessons to be learned along the way. So what would you say is the key to Verdova's success? Yeah, so I would say our secret sauce and what we're doing differently from a number of companies that you know existed before or you know are still trying to do something similar to what we're doing is we really started with the growers. We were founded uh, in part by two growers, Andy Jenks on Monmouth, Illinois, and Matt Barnard in the Gibson City area in more central Illinois. And we were able to grow to the scale that we're at now, you know, more than 100 farmers across more than 1.3 million acres of land across 16 states, really just through word of mouth. Agriculture is still a very relational business. You know, people do business with each other for generations and those bonds are really strong. And we found a way to sort of tap into those networks and get farmers to refer other farmers. And that's really how we've gotten here. And a lot of it comes down to unit economics. And I think that's where a lot of people have failed in the past. Some of the bigger players have started with these carbon marketplaces with prices somewhere on the order of 15 to about $30 per ton of sequestered carbon. And if you look at sort of the most aggressive models, if a farmer does the most drastic changes they can, so that's you know very minimal tillage and planting a cover crop for a significant period of time, uh, usually something like a multi-species legume, which you know for the majority of growers that we work with who specialize in corn, soybeans, and wheat is sort of a big departure. Uh, the unit economics for doing that just doesn't make sense. You know, if they're only making a return of fifteen to thirty dollars per carbon credit, with those changes, that comes out to about 0.7 tons of carbon per acre. We can round it up to one. They're going to be spending something like sixty dollars per acre all in for the new seeds that they need to buy to plant those legumes for the labor and you know machine time that's needed to seed them and then also an additional termination plan where they need to you know kill or remove whatever residue is from the cover crops before they're able to plant their main crop and yeah those costs come out to you know 60 to 70 dollars per acre so those economics just don't work out and what we're trying to do is find a way to you know strike a deal where it does make sense for farmers to make this change to capture that carbon 
Yeah, one of the things you said really spoke to me, how there's already very local networks between farmers. And I love that growing up in a very agricultural region in Southern California, everybody kind of knows each other. Yeah. And I think it's a great network to build off from. And I'm wondering how, what needs to happen here for this natural climate solution of carbon sequestration to really take off? That's a really good question. I think it honestly goes back to like the education components because there are just so many different programs out there and so much information. It's really tough to see what has an actual tangible impact and uh, what is kind of just fluff. I hear all the time from farmers, uh, you know, there's someone who's trying to sell them some new mixture of adjuvants or herbicides or something like that, that is supposed to be this magical fairy dust that will, you know, improve their yields, kill all the weeds, and then, you know, also sequester all this carbon. It's really difficult to sort of cut through all of that and figure out what's actually real. Every year, you know, the seed salesman will come up and try to sell a new variety, a new hybrid, you know, a new genome of corn, soybeans, or wheat. And they show you all this data that is supposed to corroborate that impact. We sort of see ourselves as being able to be the objective party that's able to show like, okay, these are the actual hybrids that will perform best on your soil type because we have lots of data. Instead of having like a very controlled environment that is, you know, a test plot, we're able to pull from the actual data from millions of acres going back decades. And there are constantly, you know, new ideas of cover crops and different practices people are testing. And we really see farmers being able to adopt those things. Before that can ever happen, we need to have the data to substantiate the impact. And then we need to be able to, you know, propagate these new concepts to the farmers uh, in a way that, you know, sort of meets them where they are and is convincing enough that they're willing to take the risk. And we're getting there on all fronts on, you know, building the relationships, building trust with them, and also, you know, using the data to make sure that our decisions are really data-driven. That sounds like exactly what needs to happen. And it's probably just one piece of the puzzle. I mean, it's such a vast area that, you know, a lot of people are weighing in on and, and have opinions on. One of the, I guess, arguments that I've come across with regards to carbon offsets is, you know, kind of zooming out here, farmers are getting paid for their carbon credits, but who is paying them? Who is needing to offset their carbon? Are carbon offsets just enabling polluters to keep polluting? So if you want to speak to that idea a little bit, I'm very curious. That is an excellent point. And, you know, I, I think it definitely comes from a background that is relatively fair, but like you were kind of saying earlier, I think carbon credits are just one small step in the bigger solution of things that need to change. If you look at the Chicago Board of Trade's carbon instrument, uh, it just corresponds with emissions from air travel. We, we see more and more things like that. So when you say like, okay, who is buying these carbon credits? Generally, it's companies that do consume a lot of fossil fuels, a lot of electricity. So, you know, a lot of oil and gas sector. Uh, a lot of tech companies more recently. And while I would definitely agree that using things like soil-based carbon credits to sort of like offset some of that impact does not stop them. Uh, when we look at these models, there's definitely more that has to be done. Like if we want to get to something like 1.5 degrees, uh, all models that climate scientists have been working on that look that project that far forward into 2030 or the 2050 time range, they all have this assumption that we will have an ability to extract huge amounts of carbon from the atmosphere, completely separate from reducing our emissions to net zero. 
And the most natural way for us to do this is through agriculture and through plants. Current carbon capture systems, and you know, it's this huge machine that has a bunch of fans that sucks in CO2, and you know, through a number of chemical processes of heating and cooling, is essentially able to turn the CO2 from the air into rocks. Uh, those processes cost on the order of three hundred dollars per ton. You know, on the other end of the spectrum, we have trees, right? You can plant trees. Trees are a great natural way of doing what I was saying that complicated machine does. And that's where the vast majority of carbon credits come from today, the forestry industry. And those carbon credits are priced in the you know, $12 to $30 range. And we're seeing that the price point that agricultural carbon credits need to be at is closer to the $60 to $70 range, which is more in line with like the, the UN's price target for credits, which is at $100. And we sort of see this as all being in this middle ground, right? Like eventually I hope that we can capture carbon at the price of trees, right? So it costs 20 to $30 for these huge machines to suck carbon out of the air. But until we get to that point, yeah, we should, we should use every tool that is at our disposal. It's honestly been like a, a whirlwind of an experience for me. We really started doing this just at the beginning of 2021 and uh, it's, <laughs> it's moved yeah, fast. Yeah, what drew you to this in the first place? Yeah, so I mean, it's really kind of just my like entrepreneurial spirit. Like I really like talking with people and finding problems that they have and trying to find a solution. And the way that Verdova kind of got started is we got introduced to Andy Jenks, this farmer who lives on West Central Illinois. And we were originally going to talk to him about crop insurance. One of the early things that Verdova did was build this crop insurance optimizer. No one wants to talk about insurance. We sort of know that. Uh, but, you know, in, in our conversation with Andy, that just became like incredibly evident. And, you know, we just sat down and asked him like, okay, Andy, like this obviously isn't a problem. This isn't something that's bothering you. What are the real issues that you deal with day in and day out? And what, what makes farming so difficult? And there's this story he always tells about how he has a seed dealer that he's been working with for many decades. And as part of, you know, like research for this company, uh, the seed dealer brought in a big team. There was something like nine people who sat in on this meeting to talk with Andy. And when they were all done, Andy like stopped the sort of like main person and he told him like, hey, you know, please just in the future, whenever you're going out and doing these types of, you know, research meetings or sales pitches, don't do that. He spends a lot of money on the seed and he knows that he's essentially, you know, supporting all of those salespeople from his perspective. It's just like he, he spends so much money on this and he doesn't get very much out of it. Have you found that the like predominant attitude is based on that? Just wondering about the farmers' attitudes and philosophies around their ability and the responsibility to do soil carbon sequestration in the face of the economics not quite being where they need to be. Yeah, so I think there's a couple of camps that we find growers in. If you look at you know farmers in the United States in general, uh, the average size of a farm is right around 400 acres. At that scale, it's really hard just to make ends meet. Uh, most farmers are just worried about, you know, okay, what can I do to make sure that I'm able to plant another crop season next year? And I, I guess what I would say is in the like larger scale of farms, the ones who are really at a point where they could be interested in carbon credits, they're roughly a thousand acres and larger. The three primary camps are, 
you know, they've sort of heard a little bit about carbon credits, but they don't know enough information and no one sort of presented anything to them that uh, was really convincing. There's another group that's sort of like holding out where they've sort of seen that carbon prices have been going up and up. And they think that if they keep waiting, that they'll be able to hit the right spot. And then the third, uh, there's a lot of farmers who just for good land stewardship and good like agronomic purposes have been doing minimal tilling or no tilling or been planting cover crops, you know, perhaps for decades. They know it's good for preventing erosion on their land and because, you know, it improves the uh, microbial biome diversity in the soil that ultimately leads to better yields. And the issues that we see with those farmers is they feel like they've missed the boat. Usually it's because the options ahead of them haven't been explained clearly, but they think that they are no longer eligible to receive compensation for the carbon they're sequestering because they can't make a change anymore. And that's one of the groups that we try to target most. We can show them, you know, through our modeling that like, hey, if you just change the type of cover crop that you're using, the cost impact is actually small. And they're sort of like the low hanging fruit where they'll actually be able to see the most benefit without much change. That's super interesting. Wow. I didn't even think about how farmers who have been doing these regenerative soil practices that store carbon for a long time might actually face more of a barrier than farmers who would be new to that. That's kind of counterintuitive. Yeah, completely, because it always goes back to making a change relative to the baseline. You know, oftentimes it's better to draw the line in the sand now so that you can use that as the basis point for improvement. You know, I explained this to a grower and they, you know, pose it the question like, okay, why don't I just throw out my new equipment that's fuel efficient and I just bring out my old diesel, you know, like heavy smoke burning tractors. Why don't I just do like very deep tilling and mess things up so that my baseline is better and so that I can make more money on my carbon credits. The way that I respond to that is, you know, th there was a reason in the past that you switched from those practices. There's a reason you reduced your tilling, you went to no-till, there's a reason you started planting cover crops that was not related to carbon credits. That decision was made, you know, likely for agronomic reasons because it would help the bottom line. And it wouldn't make sense to make those changes because the benefit, especially now for farmers, it's very incremental. Like we see it as being like a really good cherry on top of the Sunday. It's not the whole Sunday itself. It's just that little bit of nice thing that we can put on it. So what's the next step for Verdova in this carbon credit data space? Yeah, so there's a lot of, uh, you know, really exciting things going on. We have a couple of partnerships focused around this idea of being able to connect farmers with some of these larger parties that are purchasing carbon credits, being able to institute some type of system that would allow us to, you know, get the carbon credit prices to a point where it makes sense for our growers to make these, you know, big decisions and shifting their practices. You know, th there's a program that was actually started out in California that was designed originally to protect some uh, terrestrial wetlands. It's like a reverse auction system, exploring things like that. There's a partnership that we're exploring with an NGO called Foundation Earth, uh, where we're looking to embed carbon impact of any sort of like consumer good in the pricing and sort of in the label of that good. So the way that I think about it is, you know, think of your favorite brand of corn chip. That corn chip started off as a seed of corn. And with our data, we can track that along its growth cycle and all the way, you know, through the food processing until it reaches a store and someone's actually able to buy it and enjoy it. Uh, so yeah, looking at projects like that and also looking to uh, collaborate with a couple of climate analysis, climate impact data science organizations 
uh, including this company called Sus Global that's based out of London. That's super exciting. Do you have any plans to work with the U.S. government around like carbon credit subsidies or anything like that? Yeah. So, I mean, right now, the sort of existing carbon credit systems in the United States are very regional. There's the cap and trade program that California has. Uh, There's a program in the Northeast. It's a regional group that's referred to as RGGI uh, that has a, a similar like emission cap system. We haven't been directly interacting with those primarily because a lot of the infrastructure that they have set up has focused primarily on forestry. Uh, I want to say if you look at carbon credits as a whole, something like 80% of them come from uh, forestry approaches, you know, either preserving existing forests or planting new trees. Uh, As a result of that, the sort of data and validation infrastructure to support the uh, soil-based carbon from agriculture systems aren't really there. So we, we haven't spent a lot of time working with them. The reason we've started working with the groups that we have is because uh, they're associated with different registries, like the Climate Action Reserve, which developed this uh, special protocol. It's called the Soil Enrichment Protocol. Basically, it was a collaboration with several hundred soil scientists who wrote out this like very detailed procedure that describes how you can actually verify that you know, carbon was sequestered. And uh, we really hope to eventually do more work with these regional U.S. government subsidized programs. It's just they haven't quite caught up uh, with where things in the private sector are. When they catch up a little bit, we're happy to uh, you know, use our data for all different types of carbon programs. Some of the larger partners that we're working with, they definitely do have people who sort of are trying to talk with people you know, at the EPA, the USDA, Because there are definitely a lot of interesting opportunities. Uh, There's this soil stewardship program. I believe it's called, yeah, the like citizen or community soil program. That is a USDA funded project. And essentially the government will reimburse a grower for doing certain cover crop practices. So we have done a little bit of research into trying to help our growers go through those processes. But yeah, still sort of like early days for that all these practices eventually land to where we have food on the table. I think a lot of people get a bit disconnected from that. And I have really enjoyed hearing more about the farmers and growers perspective on this. Yeah, that's, that's honestly been one of the coolest things about working with all these growers. I've been able to learn so much by visiting them and you know, working with them on the farms. And I'm able to share it with everyone, just like you guys. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today and for all your work with Rodova. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Anna. Thank you, Paloma. It's uh, been really fun. Somewhere, somewhere in the distance, I see a position for coexistence. Right I'd be somewhere in an instant. I would be somewhere. You've been listening to Spaceship One.